Hello and welcome to Studio Sessions, the big red and shiny podcast where we talk with artists about the ideas, inspiration, and processes that go into their work. I'm your host Matt Kuhlman, and this episode I'll be speaking with Joanna Tam. Joanna earned a BS in Computer Science and Economics in 1994, an MS in Information Science in 1996, and an MFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston in 2012. An interdisciplinary artist, personal and cultural identity are often central to Tam's pieces. In some pieces, she explores the meaning and nature behind various cultural customs, and in other projects, she addresses her own cultural identity as an immigrant to America, such as in a project where she documents her efforts to reduce her accent through speech training. Join me as Joanna explains her pieces and the different cultural quirks that she explores through her work. Hi, Joanna. How you doing? Good. How are you, Matt? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And uh, so one interesting thing I noted in looking at your history was that you have a degree in computer science, uh-huh. actually. So you started in that realm yes, and then decided to move into yes. art. Um, uh-huh. What drove that? <laughs> um, okay, so I study computer science when I was undergrad, and then I... I also went to grad school for information science, and then I worked in like the IT software industry for many years. But mm-hmm. then, but at the same time, I was I'm always interested in art. But however, I thought I mean at that time I thought that like to be an artist you have to be trained. Like say because first of all I I don't know how to draw. I mean I don't know how to paint. I don't know how to draw. And then I thought as an artist you have to be trained when you're like in very extremely young age like five or six yeah. year old if I miss that then like I have no chance I didn't start until I was like 16 or something but I didn't, yeah but I didn't know but I actually yeah. I didn't know that so I thought that okay whatever so I just like mm-hmm. I just it's just something that I always want to do but then um, but then not until I moved to New York City for 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 job opportunities um, as a, as a IT professional, I st- start to realize that it's possible because you know, like it was New City. I mean, I love art, so I, I mean, I mm-hmm. I saw a lot of like good art and some not too good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I met and then I met some artists at that time, mostly like dancers and musicians. But so I so I realized that maybe. I could do that. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm always, I always love photography because my, I mean, my dad, my dad is a, I mean, he, he's not a professional photographer, but he, I mean, he, I grew up with a lot of cameras like at my house and looking at a lot of photographs, mm-hmm. like more National Geographic that kind of photographs. Mm-hmm. But so, so, so I was like, okay, maybe if I want to start, I should start with photography. So I started taking a lot of, um, photography classes, um, like those continuing education classes. Mm-hmm. So I started taking a lot of those, and then um, I had like very really good teachers. But then I realized that because in those classes you probably 
know, like the conversation that I had in those cl- classes, I realized that it's difficult to push me into another level if I want to develop my practice and um, if, I, or if I want to do the art that I want to do. Mm-hmm. So that's why I decided to go for um, like a more full-time like um, edu- education opportunity so I decided to apply for an MFA mm. yeah so that's you how jumped into it jumped into it, <laughs> jumped into it. yes uh-huh. nice yep and have you ever considered like trying to bring computers into your practice from what the pieces that I saw it didn't seem like mm-hmm. your that kind of background played much of a part but yeah. is it in there and I just didn't see it or? um I actually I haven't done so far I haven't put a lot of used a lot of like my programming skills into my work, but um, I kind of want to do, but I still haven't find a way or a reason to do it yet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I feel that my training in science for some, I mean, I think it can affect my work because I realized that some of my a lot of my work they have like very structure and clinical I mean a lot of work has to do with repetition mm-hmm. and I think maybe that part play into it mm-hmm. a little bit yeah but not too much so far yeah I think it's interesting you mentioned like kind of a clinical me- method of thinking because there's one piece you did where you invited people to come to your house for a like mock date and yeah. that's kind of like an experiment like a social <laughs> experiment that's yeah exactly what somebody who studies that stuff would do or something uh-huh, uh-huh. but uh, do you want to explain like that piece a little bit and like the kind of things that happen yeah so in that piece I um so originally I was like okay I'm very interested in one-on-one conversation and because I feel that it's my time to have attention to um from another person and vice versa and also I'm very interested in how people perceive the word date Mm -hmm. so I'm interested in how the relationship between like contacts and the kind of conversation that's like driven from in in this context so so what I did was I um, I decided to invite my colleagues to come to my house to have a one-on-one conversation with me. But then, the, but then they have to dress like as if they they were going on the first date. <laughs> and and then so 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 at my house, I would have like I set up like I have a table, and then and then I will okay. So before a date, I will ask them. So if you if they want to have wine or coffee or tea, so I so I would like prepare. Like some snack or drink for them um, to make like more cozy, mm-hmm. and and then and then we start to have a conversation. But then at the same time, I I set up a still camera um, to kind of document the date, and then the still camera would take photographs of our interaction um, every one minute. And so after so after I did the piece, I realized that. Um, the piece becomes about um, the relationship between these private encounters, private meetings, versus these documents becomes like public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I so and then at the end I make some I make like box for each individual 
date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and then, so in each book, like, like uh, in, in in the documentary yeah. photos, I saw some people seem like more engaged, and some yeah. people were kind of like sitting back, like this is dumb. Yeah, so I think like I think I'm very interested in like what people, what a viewer will, because they have to guess, mm-hmm. they have to imagine what's going on, um, based on our body gestures and facial expressions. So I think looking back, I, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you record the audio conversation no. you're having? No, I, no, I purposely no. don't. Because first of all, I really want to have a genuine conversation between me and my date. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason. And also another reason is that I want to keep this like a mystery for the viewers. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you hint some of the things that were talked about? or? <laughs> well... We end up talking about like just kind of general, ge- general things, things. G- general things, and then we like gossip, and then like basically more, well, some are more personal, like for s- s- some of the stuff we probably would not talk about like at school or in the studio. Mm-hmm. So it, I mean, it kind of varies, and also it depends on the date. Some like some people I knew them pretty well already, but some like not that well. So it really, so it really depends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are there any other pieces you've done that... Or there was one you did that was in a shower, a public shower. Oh, yeah. also dealt with kind of one-on-one conversation yeah. that you were talking about. Yeah, so that one was done very... Um, last... Wait, yeah, last summer. So it was a collaborative between um, me and another artist, Leah Cray. So um, we were doing this performance at a public bathhouse in... Um, in P-Town um, that public bathhouse was actually it's, it's not here any, it's not there anymore it's a historic public bathhouse and um, right after our performance the bathhouse um, was like dismantled because of like weather related mm. um, or erosion weather related um, reasons so basically so so when we decided to do that piece we, we started to think about like the social functions of a public bathhouse and then we realized that like with my experience with going to public bathhouses in mostly in other countries like it's people go there not only to clean their body but to to gossip Mm. Like to or to just talk or have conversation, and they sometimes they just stay there for a very long time. <laughs> yes, after they clean their body, so their the body. So 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 that's why we decided to have a conversation in a shower, and then the content of the conversation can want to tie to the destiny or the history of this bathhouse, in which like because it's a historic bathhouse, and I know a lot of people in P-Town when they grow up with like when they're um, for, for to swim and then spend a lot of times in in the beach so we decided to talk about like the experience of our home like our hometown so I was talking about my experience of Hong Kong and also she and then Leah was talking about her experience in um, in Las Vegas in which like both cities were like the islands keep changing and they're always in transitions mm-hmm. so yeah and also we and then we made a we made a huge block of soap and then so we're just passing around mm-hmm. the soap and then at the end and then and then and like using the soap to yeah to have a shower and then and then we also made like um 
some smaller soaps in which like the soaps are infused with the essence of Pitan for mm-hmm. people to take away because it's like the la- almost the last day of that bath house. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, how are some of the ways you discuss like you said Hong Kong is like always changing or yeah. in flux? Like, mm-hmm. what was your experience growing up there? Like, how do you see it like as a, in a state of constant change? Um, so when. Okay, so I I was born in Hong Kong, and then I left Hong Kong after I finished high school. And during that time, Hong Kong was still a British colony. Mm-hmm. And but then, um, but then after I came to here, um, China mainland China started to like take over back Hong Kong. But then I wasn't there. I mean, I was here already. Mm-hmm. So is so the identity is keep changing because it used to be, at least when I was growing up, I knew my my relationship to mainland is very vague because mm-hmm. I I think I only went there once in my life for like two days or something. So I was yeah. at the border, and then also at that time growing up like. The mainland China wasn't as open as right now, so a lot of times I heard, I mean, I knew about mainland China via the media or via, and mm-hmm. also I had, I mean, of course I had no idea if those, those things about China are true or not. So, mm-hmm. but then right now is, I mean, becomes, be, I mean, it's different now. Like people are more connected to China, but I'm not there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so actually, I love my work has to do with like my exploration, examination of the notion of like, ethnicity and nationality. Mm. Yeah. remember there was uh, one piece you did where it was like kind of the speech therapy thing that you were doing online yeah um was it you were trying to totally eradicate your accent and you said you also i think the description said you did some research on accents yeah and things uh, do you want to discuss yeah so that what you yeah, discovered? yeah so that piece um in that piece i was trying to use like foreign accent, I mean accents, in my case like foreign accent um, as a kind of like a starting point to talk about like bigger things and so what I did was I okay so when I was in New York I on subway one day I was like I saw this advertisement say like accent reduction yeah I think I've seen this yeah so, yeah so and then when I first I remember when I first saw that I was like really shocked by the I was shocked by the term that they use, accent reduction. It sounds really clinical or scientific. And then, but also I was like skeptical, does it really work or something? And also I felt that must be some, like having an accent must be something that people want to neutralize or get rid of. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, so what I decided to do is since I have like I have a 
Cantonese accent. But so I think right now my accent is kind of a combination of Cantonese and British English because I learned mm-hmm. I learned English like the British way, and then but then I've lived here for many years. So it's a combination of American English and American accent, like Chinese accent, and like British and British accent. Mm-hmm. So what so what I did was I found a a accent reduction coach where she she gives accent one on one accent reduction training or lessons online via Skype. Mm-hmm. So I did that as part of my research of what because I want to understand what accent is and what like what this class what these class classes is about. So I did it as part of my research but also as part of the work itself because when I was doing the training, um, I set up a camera in front of me um, where like the camera would just have would just capture my body um, body gestures and facial expressions as and so it captured a lot of times when like when my coach was trying to correct my accent then sometimes I feel like very frustrated because I couldn't pronounce the words that like she wants me to pronounce but then sometimes I feel like I feel like I felt boring because mm-hmm. like really like I think I get that mm-hmm. and then so and sometimes I was like I just I, 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 was just, I mean it's just like the, basically the footage becomes like very funny and mm-hmm. interesting and so I did. So I think I took I took six. I had like six sessions with with her, and then each session was an hour and twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. So I documented the whole. I mean, so I documented all that, and then I mix it up in. I, I mean, I made videos mm-hmm. of them, and then in the videos, like I purposely use. They are on headphones. I mean, when I show it, they are done monitors, and then they have to be on headphones because mm-hmm. the part, the headphones part, is actually kind of important to me. Where like I want to tell people that if you want to understand the viewer, I mean, if you want to understand someone, like it's not you kind of have to as a listener. You also have to take initiatives. So yeah, so basically, so basically, so so that so that's the piece, and also so that's one part of the of this like accent reduction project. But another part of the piece was like I, um, besides taking the class, I also have interviews like um, students who have taken these classes because I want to understand like why they want to take these classes, and and it turns out that a lot of people take these classes. They are like they are foreign professionals, so they are actually very successful in their career. However, they're afraid that their foreign accent would affect their um, their career development. Mm-hmm. So, so I interviewed some of these students and also I have interviewed some of like sociolinguists because I want to kind of know the, the, academic, the academic explanation, or like the intellectual, or the scientific explanation of accents so so based on all the research that I've done and also my personal experience as a as an accent reduction student I made another video mm-hmm. yeah based on that uh-huh. mm-hmm. were you able to reduce your accent through the training no it's like oh. well no because basically okay so so I asked um so all the 
linguists, sociolinguists that I talked to, they all said that it's almost impossible at my age because when it, mm. it's, it's more possible when you started like super young yeah. but then at my age there's like almost impossible yeah, yeah you just have ingrained speech uh-huh. patterns the way you talk yeah yeah accents are a funny thing like I'm from Kansas middle of the country and that whole area is regarded as like accent neutral like when they train mm-hmm. people to be news anchors they teach them uh-huh. to try to speak about how they do in Kansas City you yeah. know because it's not like the kind of nasally east coast or whatever mm-hmm. and, uh, around here in Boston I haven't been here that long but I've been here like a year and a half and it still just like catches me off guard sometimes the yeah. other day at the bar I heard mm-hmm. I heard this phrase that almost made my head explode it was like Tamara's the harpoon takeover party <laughs> and I was like there's R's all over that where yes. are they <laughs> like, uh-huh. but it's just I'll never be able to make that jump to thinking that that's like normal way of speaking. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, like basically, accent tells a lot about where you're from, and also the his. I mean, the your know, history, mm-hmm. but also there's like all these like class structure. I mean, like I mean, I guess not as much as in the US, but like mm-hmm. in Europe is about like these class structures. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. interesting how they don't seem to move like. It, an accent stays in a region mostly yeah. and mm-hmm. even though the people are always constantly moving it's that region has its way of talking yeah and especially in the modern day and age I think it's interesting that those things can persist uh huh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've got some other pieces of yours noted down that are a little different in content, I suppose, Mm -hmm. um, than what we've been talking about. One here is, oh, say, can you act? Uh And um, from what I just have written down, it says it's a video compilation of people singing the national anthem at sporting events. Yeah. Um, What was the idea behind that? Okay, so um, actually this piece is also related to my my interest in interest in exploring like nationality and ethnicity so I'm very interested in how people perform the nationality and patriotism Mm -hmm. so and what I so when I was doing my research I found out that there's a US there's a code in the US law that suggests how each individuals this is just like what each individual should do when national and nat- the national anthem and the US flag I mean national anthem is played and say I think in the code it said that like if you're in military uniform then you need to salute and then but then if you're not in military of, or you're not in uniform then you just place your hand on your heart and then but then look at the flag something like that while mm-hmm. while national while um national anthem is played so 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 i found that so that code in the law which i find is very interesting that is actually in the law but then at the same time i'm when i watch like i mean i'm not a big sports fan but then every time i watch like those events where 
when they are playing the the national anthem, I realized that first of all, when I look when the when I look at the athletes, other players, I feel that. I mean, it's hard to tell what they're thinking because they kind of like because they prof- a lot of them they're professional um, athletes, so they have paid to to perform like very patriotic. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know. Like maybe they, I don't know what they had. You can tell what they're thinking. Also, but, if it's like a baseball player, they have to do that like 160 times. Yes, a year. like it's just standing there doing that again. Yes, again. and then and then people will be like. Like, I mean, like, I don't know, like, shaking their heads, or I don't know, like, some shooting bubble gums and stuff. <laughs> and then, so, but, okay, so, but then on the, on, for the audience, on the viewers, they, um, they were also very, I mean, some of them seems, like, very emotional about that, but some was like, what's going on? And it's, like, very boring. So, I'm very interested in... <clears throat> In these the performance the perf um the performance aspect of um when national anthem is played. So in the videos, what I did was like at the beginning of the videos, um I as a I asked um I asked my male friend to read the the actual code the code the U.S. law code and then and then. And then um, I'll have I'll have um, scenes of footage from YouTube's where um, national national anthem is played during, like, say, Super Bowls or like Sox games or mm-hmm. the Olympics, and and they, and all the footage captures like either the athletes or the or the people in the ceremony, or also like maybe the viewers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was curious. In other countries, before a sports game, do they always play the national anthem of that country? Okay, is so that an American thing. Okay, so this is something. Okay, this is the reason why I. Okay, actually, because I actually growing up, I actually didn't learn any national anthem because of the status of Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I'm very interested in national anthem or these kind of patriotic. Actions is because I don't. I mean, I never experienced that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm pretty. I think they do from what I heard. But to me, actually, I mean, I never learned like the Chinese national anthem or the mm-hmm. British national anthem. Yeah. So yeah. I know, like at the Olympics, they play it at the end. Yeah. That, like at every single baseball game in America, they yeah, always they play at the beginning. Yes. I don't know if that was like just us or if. Because mm-hmm. I was, I discovered through talking to another artist that the flag folding ceremony is mm-hmm. strictly American. Like other countries uh-huh. don't have a flag. Oh, folding I had no ceremony. idea. Yeah, so, but, but I think, but I heard like I heard other people said that they. I mean, at least from some countries, they do have that. They have like they sing the national anthems before mm-hmm. the game. before like soccer or whatever they're into. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And I guess another piece that's kind of similar along those lines um, was we who we are what we do where you were working with like mission statements from large companies and you're combining with like artist statements and that's kind of along the same lines of like having this totem this 
thing that defines like the culture or like who you are or something and uh-huh. um how are you approaching it okay specific okay so that piece um i did it with a cut of my um chris ford so what we did was okay so we're invited to to make a piece at um Bentley university which is a leading business school so so at the beginning we we're thinking about like what's the relationship connection between someone who this business and artist and an artist so and then we realized that like the waste I mean for some artists and some big business I mean 500 corporations in the mission statements or in for artists case their artist statement or their press release or in the interviews like they people I mean either are both artists some artists I mean some artists on some mis corporations they like to use some very baked words Mm-hmm. to talk about really big things that are super positive like say they talk about like innovation like mm-hmm. like corporate responsibilities the culture and you know all the like visions like they especially I mean in 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 and companies' vision, uh, mission statement they talk about their visions and the missions a lot mm-hmm. which like in which like when when we're doing the research we found that like they sometimes it becomes a very empty language mm-hmm. yeah and then and then i re- and then we realize that as, as artists some some artists when they talk about their work like some people use love using those like buzzwords that may not yeah, actually fit <laughs> with what they're doing but just basically it makes people even more confused mm-hmm. rather than like understanding what they're doing so so we we're interested in this like um the interconnection between how like artists and business use language. So what we did was um, we made two big text um, text piece where on one on one text piece the he- I mean the title is called who we are and then under the title we have all these subtitles um, like say vision culture responsibility something like that and then under each subheading under each subheadings we we actually like mix I mean the content or the text of each subheadings are actually um text from real mission statements from Fortune five hundred Fortune five hundred companies like Exxon and and Bank Americas. And intermix those statements with um artist interviews, mostly from Art Twenty Ones like Jeff Koons and Mao Chins and I mean other other big other big artists. Mm-hmm. And then so mix mix them together so that when you actually read them, like it's you won't understand what they're talking about. Yeah. It becomes like very empty language and also very like kind of funny and yeah. interesting. It it is funny how similar they are and just using like meaningless big words to try to sound important. I actually just read this morning an article about what they call art speak, which is so uh-huh. true. Just like you read so many statements where the artists like use as many big uncommon words as possible to try to sound like they have really big ideas, but yeah, you can't understand it because it doesn't mean anything. It's like yeah, exploring radical conical explorations of disparate languages and yeah like, it's like what are you trying to say uh-huh and the article is actually saying that that kind of arose out of translations of french philosophy into english around like the 60s and 70s uh-huh. 
Whereas before that, you had, like, more common language, like, artist statements. Yeah. But academia kind of latched onto these, uh, yeah, this language. Like yeah, and, exactly. And then, especially <laughs> then when I look back as my own training in art school, all, yeah, my own training in art school and also my practice, like, to me, I feel that, I mean, at least to me, I make work because I want to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. But then, but then sometimes, like, these statements, these art statements becomes, like, or the language that we use to talk about our work becomes, like, dis- distracting mm-hmm. to what I'm actually trying to communicate. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, it's just kind of something that persists because you're exposed to it and you think that's how it's supposed to be written. I, yeah. I, I try to make things as understandable as I can when I yeah, write a statement. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'd rather... More of my work focuses on, like, trying to get work into the hands of, like, people who wouldn't normally buy yeah. art anyway, so... Exactly, because I feel that a lot of... I mean, some... I mean, a lot of people, when they write about their work, they use either term- terminologies or something that... If you're not... If you don't have... If you never went to art school, you probably won't understand what yeah. you're talking about. <laughs> which, I mean, I don't want my... For me, I don't want my work to only, like, be understandable by artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I was just thinking, literally, like, two days ago about, like, mission statements. Uh It just popped in my head. I had this job interview, like, a couple years ago, and Uh the guy asked, like, what I thought about mission statements, and personally, I think they're stupid and meaningless, but I was at the interview, so I was like, well, I think they're useful for such and such, but I was like... I, next time I should just be honest, you probably saw through my bullshit, and I was just like, I think they're worthless. Like, everybody... Every business has the same mission. They want to make more money than the other guy. Like, yeah, exactly. That's, that's everybody's mission, and they're just trying to fluff it up to make it sound like it's more than that, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, oh my god. Because, like, I mean, like, writing about my own work is very important in my practice, but then every time I try to do that, I mean, I make sure that... Because I think being an artist, honesty is very important. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, I make sure that when I write about my work, it's sick to what I mean I want I mean it's very important to be just be what it is just yeah mm-hmm. to me that's very important yeah I guess if you can find a business out there that's intent on being second best or like not being as good as their competition yeah. then they could have a statement about yes, it I, yeah exactly everybody else should have the same one we want to be the best we want to make the most money yes So, what are some other uh, pieces that you'd like to talk about that we haven't got to yet? Or um, have we talked about any of your most recent projects yet? Um, okay, so that one, the accent one, was actually pretty recent. And there's another one that is I did, that is kind of recent in which, like... Um, okay, so in my work, I use language. I use, like spoken language a lot in my work and one of the pieces that I did was like um, I was in Istanbul in a like performance festival um, situation where I um, when I was there I found that I really want okay so I've been to Istanbul twice so and 
every time I, when there I try to learn this phrase like thank you very much in mm. Turkish and if I'm very difficult to pronounce is um chok okay chotachiku idrum chotachiku idrum yeah but I mean okay but don't learn <laughs> from me twist, it's yeah. like don't don't <laughs> learn from me because because I know that is like I yeah it's probably <laughs> not still not still not very um correct but anyway so I found this um phrase very difficult to pronounce so what i did was um in the work i um so so the performance took place in a gallery where i is it the second is in a second level of a like kind of like a street mall or shop like a shopping alley or something and then so what i did was i started out asking um a local shopkeeper to write um thank you very much in turkish on my on my arm and then and then i went i went to the gallery and then what i did was like in the gallery i have a big piece of reflective miter so what i did was i was like writing that phrase um um in thank you very much in turkish while repeatedly while i was like saying that phrase in turkish mm-hmm. until i was exhausted so um i'm very interested in like how things start to break down as an action is repeated over time and also i'm just in this like for me it's kind of like impossible as a failure to learn this language or mm-hmm. to learn this to learn the culture because i'm like because to me i'm always a tourist or a outsider mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. yeah what are some other pieces where you um do things repeatedly like that because i haven't really seen that in a lot of the things we've talked about um there actually comes one of them is a very direct it's a one year process based work or performance where where i was writing the um the information of each iraqi civilians who died in the wars um okay i, re- yeah. I remember yeah. saying some, something about that yes yeah. okay so so i found this i found a website which is a database called the, um the iraq body count and what they do is they will they take um news from both western media and middle eastern media and they use the data they use the data from the news and cross reference with like ngo data and they come with this database in which it has like all the documented iraqi iraqi civilians who died like in the war scenes like 2003 something mm-hmm. like that so so what i did was like i i started to write down their bios on an index card so each index card like represent one like um one casualty or one iraqi like dead iraqi civilians so and then at the bottom of the card i say like please remember please try to remember this person like that mm. and so at the beginning so i started this project because i felt like guilty about not knowing too much about what's going on there so and so it started out and then the numbers um the, okay so so the title of this piece is 
Okay, because for index card, I actually have to print the index cards because on the card I have like name and then location and then like mm. age of these of each person. So I broke two printers because I cause, so basically all and like I I mean all the pens I use basically everything that I use in that piece I took a picture. So I have like mm. a still photograph. So that's the image of the video and then the audio of the video. Um, was me reading a text that I wrote about my experience of doing this piece like repeatedly um, for I think the text if I read the text one once um, one t- one one time it takes it would take me like four minutes mm-hmm. but the whole video it's like two hours mm-hmm. so so I so I keep like reading that text like repeatedly for I don't know like for mm-hmm. two hours yeah yeah mm-hmm. Um, so how large of a mountain did these cards end up actually making? Like, how are they arranged? You just kind of stack them up. Like, yeah, they did stack up. It's like, it's like, um, it's like the size of this wall. Mm-hmm. If I do one layer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, do you, do you keep that at your house? Is it okay, right. Okay, right. <laughs> okay. So one thing about making, doing something like that is like, okay. So right now they, the, the, all the cards are in my studios. And the problem is that I have to do another thing because I cannot just throw them away because yeah. it's very disrespectful. So I basically, I right now I have to find a way to get rid of these cards in a dis, in a more respectful way. So I'm thinking just like burn them. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it's easy, but I mean, I'm not going to make a thing out. I'm not. I'm not going to document it. But it's just something that I have to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of burden. <laughs> it's like it's because this burden that it's just I never expected. Yeah, yeah, I should have actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know the feeling when you start working large, and then all of a sudden you're like, "What do I do with this now that I made it?" Like, <laughs> yeah, and then to me, and especially like, it's just not like it's not something that I can just get rid of because they represent a person. Mm-hmm. So I think that part is just as such an emotional burden mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Maybe you could come up with some kind of end of the performative event to it where you disperse them somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm still thinking about that. Well, I'm about out of questions for you. If you got anything else you wanted to talk about before we go or... No, I think that's, yeah, that's it. All right. Uh-huh. Sounds good. Thanks for meeting with me today. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Studio Sessions with our guest Joanna Tam. You can find her work online at joannatam.net. You can also learn more about me at my website, mattcoolman.com. If you'd like to support this program, you can send a donation through PayPal to studiosessionspodcast at gmail.com. Even if you only send $1, your donation helps guarantee that I can continue providing interviews with interesting artists for your listening pleasure. And of course, don't forget to visit BigRedAndShiny.com for future episodes along with other arts and culture content. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Studio Sessions. Mm-hmm.